0: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of LTC Heroes. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I hope you're ready to learn a lot, because on today's episode, we have Glenn Fox. Glenn is Executive VP, Legal Compliance Risk Management at Axe Retirement Life Communities. Glenn has 35 plus years of experience as a lawyer, so he knows all the ins and outs of the legal LTC world, but he's also an expert on financing and mergers, so he's a perfect fit for our show. This episode was brought to you by experience.care, the long-term care EHR backed by guarantees. Visit experience.care forward slash guarantee to get your free profitability consultation today. Glenn, welcome to the program. Thanks, Peter. It's good to be here. Glenn, I don't normally come to podcasts with detailed notes, but I'm a little bit intimidated by your resume and we will probably tease out some of your experience. But you're definitely the first person on the podcast who has a master's of law and taxation.
1: That was just schooling I had years ago. But I liked school for a while. I don't know why. It just, it just seemed like the right thing to do.
0: I think the marketing assistant put it in bold caps for me just to intimidate me. So I like to start off our podcast with a couple questions so we can get to know you. To get started, what valuable or actionable advice do you think that we'll talk about today related to long-term care?
1: If your listeners are having an issue or having something that they're going through, understand that others probably have gone through it as well and there are there are professionals out there that can help them through
0: that. Fantastic. That's comforting. What is one lesser known resource in long-term care that you would send me to, to get up to speed? Anything probably that McKnight's puts out leading
1: age has a lot of publications on their website. and, And frankly, Google, there's so much information that's out there today to learn that you go through. I've, I've used that as much as I can when we're just looking at things just to at least start looking at issues.
0: Being an attorney doesn't mean that you're going to be a great attorney in long-term care. Who is someone who's inspired you specifically in the way that you approach long-term care in the legal world? The lawyers, there are not a lot of lawyers that have worked in long-term care. Long-term care
1: is a relatively new area when you think about uh, areas of the law so that they're really not a lot. I, I, I am a member of the Leading Age Legal Committee as well as the Leading Age uh, In-House Counsel Legal Committee, two different groups, but but a lot of counsel that are involved in this, work in this every day. The in-house group attorneys are all attorneys that work for long-term care organizations. And so that's probably the group that I would go to if, if there are issues that we come up with. I don't think there's anybody standard Uh, specifically in long-term care. If you're talking about other areas such as leadership, I might go to Simon Sinek, who is, you know, his book that I think I've read in several times is Leaders Eat Last. I think that's very helpful when you're, when you're working in an organization as a, as an officer, frankly, for how you would operate with people. That's really what this is all about.
0: Simon Sinek's book came up in one of my most recent podcasts. So, There must be an ongoing theme about how he's speaking to us and specifically in our industry.
1: I think so. And he has spoken at industry conferences.
0: So I think he's well-known in the industry. We'll put his notes in the episode notes if anyone's interested in looking him up as well. So I think that there's three bigger topics that we'll jump around today in our chat, Glenn, which are financing, affiliations, and then probably some legal questions. In order to get into affiliations, which is related to acquisitions, tell me just a little bit what that means, both affiliations and what Ax does in terms of affiliations for someone who comes from, you know, a silo sniff in the middle of Kansas who doesn't know what Axe does and how you guys grow in your relationship with other smaller nursing homes. Sure.
1: Well, Axe is been around for almost fifty years. We'll have our 50 year, 50th year anniversary next year in 2022. I have to remember where we are right now. And our main objective is in the continuing care retirement community realm. We have 26 communities, basically East Coast-based, up and down the East Coast from Pennsylvania down through Florida and over to Alabama. So when we're looking at affiliations, what, what we're looking at are organizations with like missions. How, how that's really a key to us is how uh, those organizations would fit within our mission, if you will, of serving people in this industry. So let's understand the difference between an affiliation and an acquisition. I think that that may have been really. Please. Your
0: yeah, that'll help me.
1: Because the, the nonprofit world is a little bit different than the for-profit world. I'm going to, I'll try to explain some of these concepts to you. So so in both ways so that you'd understand it. And again, the industry obviously has for-profit organizations and nonprofit organizations working in it, I generally work in the nonprofit and have have generally always worked in the nonprofit area to move through. So let, you're going to hear the topics, or you're going to hear the, the names, that acquisition, affiliation. They're similar, but they're different. An acquisition is essentially a, a, acquiring the assets of an organization so that if you're a for-profit, if you will, you simply buy the assets, either set it up in your current operations or create a new entity and drop those assets into a new entity. An affiliation is a little bit different. If this were a for-profit world, it would be likened to a stock acquisition so that you have an owner in the for-profit world, you have an owner of that shareholders of that, the shareholder would sell their holdings, if you will, their stock in that organization. So So that entity remains the same if you will it just simply has a new owner. Mm-hmm. In the nonprofit world we ha- there, there's no such thing as shareholders. There are no shareholders in a nonprofit organization. It's it may have a member and that's the person who generally controls who appoints the board of directors. So an affiliation is one where if an organization either is affiliated with another organization as its member or is not affiliated with anybody else their membership interest is transferred or provided to a new organization. Again, like a stock, if this were for profits, like the transfer of a stock interest in one corporation to another.
0: So it's not just semantical
1: either, right? Oh, no. Okay. There are legal differences and and it's it's not just semantics. It's a different structure for a transaction.
0: So Axe, because it is nonprofit, it dabbles or deals mainly in affiliations, right? You're not acquiring... Well, again, there's a great legal
1: term, and I get accused of using this oh so much. The answer is it depends. It depends on the transaction. Every transaction will be different. Sometimes you might look at a situation where the organization might acquire assets. Again, you got to look at the individual transaction and see whether that makes sense for what you're doing. Generally, though, when we've done these, we've done it through an affiliation. Again, uh, a membership transfer where Axe will become the member. or an affiliate of Axe will become a member of another organization.
0: Now, I think the reason that the affiliation is what most interested me about talking to you and and, and and meeting you is because since COVID, there's been a lot of talk about what's going to happen in the industry. There are you know people that are saying that mom and pop shops are going to be in best shape because they have the lowest costs and healthcare is local. There are others who say that they're not going to be able to make it because the census is down and the larger management companies are going to acquire. So where is Axe and specifically, where do you see the situation in 2021 with affiliations? Are, 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 is, is the industry scared? Are you guys still looking forward? Are you planning to grow with, your, with more communities? We were
1: acquisitive, if you will. We were, we were looking at this before covid and after even and and now. I, I think that's something that we're, we've looked at. COVID has probably sped up the industry in looking at these issues as opposed to just acts because we we have looked at that as a way of growing. We've looked at that as a way of helping the industry and helping seniors, if you will, being able to move the process forward, if you will, move move even the industry forward through that. I think what COVID has done has sped up some of the issues that have come for smaller organizations, either single site organizations or small multi-site organizations, because COVID has been so, the issues that have come up and come through it for a management team have been so difficult as far as managing through COVID as well as your normal operations.
0: Can you give a specific example, and obviously you don't have to mention the name, you know of a community that has decided to join X and become affiliated with X in the last 3 or 4 years and tell me what was in their mind what was what was their mindset like did the board approach you when do you get involved what are the things that you you, you as an attorney you guys as a leadership team start to look at when someone's knocking on your door sure let me just talk in general I
1: unless enlist- Several years we have affiliated with other organizations, but rather than you know, pick one of them, let me give you a more general background that may affect others for reasons because there's 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 usually a set of you know five, six, seven, eight reasons why an organization may look to affiliate with another organization. Yeah, I'd love um, to go through those. Sure. Uh, it, what I can remember at this point. Again, I've been doing this for a long time. So they're not all gonna roll off my tongue, but let me give you the major ones a major couple of them, at least, because we could be here for, uh, I've I've done conferences and seminars on this and we'd be here all day. And I don't think you have enough tape uh, (laughs) for me to be able to run this, but there are a couple of reasons. Let me, let me give you a couple. One could be a change in management team could be that that the CEO is going to retire from an organization and the board doesn't know how to replace them or whether, whether they want to move there that way. It could be because of the intricacies of the law. You know, we, Somewhere along the line, we'll get into what I might do on a daily basis. As I said, while I sit on the leading age legal committee and the leading age in house legal committee, there are not a lot of attorney, uh, attorneys who work in house in this industry. Again, I was outside counsel for ACTS and others for, for 30 some years, well, for 30 some years in the, in the practice. And so, you know, you would think there's a lot of attorneys that work in this area, there are not. So and this is a unique area of understanding to try to move through. The intricacies of the law in this area make it difficult for organizations to be able to keep up. Sometimes an, either the board or management might say we've got to affiliate with someone else because of those issues. Another reason is financial in 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 nature. An organization is struggling with with meeting either debt covenants and we'll talk about that in financing a little bit or other areas where they need help in management or in other areas that, that may be able to help them through and help their financings, if you will. I've seen that in situations where they're struggling and it, it, we may be able to help them and other organizations, but we may be able to help them as they try to move forward with that to, to, miss, to not miss their debt covenants.
0: Are there certain motives on their side of things that tend to make it easier when you guys approach and say, yeah, this is a perfect community. We want to be affiliated with them as opposed to a different motive.
1: Well, our board has given us certain criteria that we'll want to look at as we're looking through affiliations or looking for affiliation partners. One of the keys there is, again, mission compatibility. We start there. I mean, we really look at making sure that, Our missions are compatible through that process. We also don't want to go where we may not be wanted. In other words, we don't look to do a hostile takeover. Mm. Some organizations, you know, more for-profits than nonprofits will do this. That, hey, I, I like this, I like this community, I like this area, I want to take this over, I can make money there. I'm simply going to buy it and go forward. We want to be wanted by the community, by the residents, and by others. And if we get the inkling that we may not be wanted for whatever reason. We may back away, or there have been times when we've tried to convince and have convinced organizations that yeah we're the right we're the right fit for your organization. We just we want to help you through that and to understand that. Again, this is an education process as well, because boards, residents, others, they may not understand the process. They may, and they may and they may be scared of what's going to happen and what's going to happen to them. Again, you know you're, you're dealing with seniors if they're if you we're talking about the residents, they're hopeful that. That they're not looking to to have their status changed. They're not help, helpful. They're hopeful that no one is going to move in to try to change and
0: upset the apple cart, if you will, for what what they do and how they do it. Going back to the question about the first thing that you look at is a mission, and I don't want to be negative, but I sense that a lot of times missions are hard to understand. They are written. Generically, by someone maybe fifteen or twenty years ago, and they haven't been updated. And it's if you you to figure out to use Simon Senex words, the why you really got to know know them first. So I'm guessing that's probably true with you all. In some sense, you see a mission on a website, then you go speak to the board, and you realize the mission is even more in line with your than your mission than what it looks like on paper. How do you? make sure that mission is aligned and if you speak specifically to your mission and give an example of where something perfectly lined up sure
1: it comes through talking it comes through a discussion with both leaders and with with residents if you will and and others in the organization i i think that's how you really get to feel the get the feel and the flavor for how things operate and how you operate and whether whether what you do is, is appropriate. We look at, we're, we're, religiously oriented, not through that. And we look for that in other organizations that, mm-hmm. that we're compatible and they are compatible with our mission as well.
0: What are the struggles that you all see in your, your affiliation as your community body grows? And not just from a legal point of view, because i'm I'm sure you sit on there as a manager and as a human being as well, yes, absolutely. The, I, I think it's 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 trying to
1: make sure that management flows through at all levels. we're We're basically set up in divisions at this point and regions, if you will. We're in five different regions with each headed by a regional vice president as teams. So, so one of the things we've done is taken management really operational day-to-day and pushed it down into the regions to make sure that, that things are being run appropriately. Hmm. That's really part of that, part and parcel of that, is to make sure that the message continues on. Some of the issues that come up is making sure that you know, some of these organizations, we've got to look at cleanup. You know, we've got to look at different things that, that may have occurred previously that we're trying to make sure are appropriate. It could be in different areas of of operation. It may be that we, you know, we're looking at food service in various areas, or could be looking at food service in various areas and how we operate. Some organizations may do this outside of the organization through other managers, and and we may want to change that or go to a different different way of operating. So, will I mean, one of the things, and I've been involved. I guess I'm going to liken this a little bit to law firm mergers, if you will. I've been involved in several law firm mergers where my organization, my law firm was merged up into, I had this twice happen to me, my law firm merged up into uh, larger firms. And you try to go through, and I guess the first time that happened to me, I had one of my partners come to me and say, who knows, maybe they'll adopt some of our policies through the process. And that was never going to happen with a larger firm taking over a smaller firm. We'll look at the policies of an organization, and we have had times when they've had policies in place that we liked. I mean, so we're open to, to look at that. But then again, you're trying to match up what one organization did with what you do, what we do, and make sure that you know, that it's compatible. But we will look at what an or- another organization does and see whether it may make more sense on what we're doing now.
0: Have you worked on the private side of acquisitions? I have yes, and and how how is it different? Both for you know the the community, for the management company, and then also as an attorney on private acquisition. I have I have
1: not worked in healthcare private acquisitions, but I started when I first started practicing law. My client, the the client that I did a lot of work for, owned and operated sanitary landfills, and so I my I cut my teeth in the in. In mergers and acquisitions, in buying and selling landfills and 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 uh, uh, trash hauling companies, so so I learned a lot about the requirements that are there. I think that there's probably different government regulations that you got to be concerned about in a nonprofit versus a for-profit. And again, the 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 large ticket, the large thing that you're trying to make sure that you're not doing is anything that will affect the exempt purpose of the organization. That's the key to a nonprofit charitable organization, 501c3 organization, is that there is nothing that you do that interferes with your exempt purpose and your exemption from from tax.
0: I'm gonna ask you a very human question. You're probably, when, when a community comes and knocks on your all's door and says, we're interested, we're a little bit in trouble, our, our leader is getting older, we don't know if we can continue on, we think you guys can carry on our mission. You're probably one of the first person who starts to look at them and you probably ask them for some paperwork. The human question for you is, what does that communication look like? How scared are they? Do they, because they're probably too small to have an in-house attorney, right? They might be thinking you're trying to take advantage of them. They might be afraid that you're so big that their mission might live on. Speak to it from, from, from that side of things, if you would. Yeah, absolutely. It's, and
1: it's interesting because I think we take that into account and I know I certainly take that into account as I'm looking at here to try to calm them down, if you will. And, and I think that comes with the conversations. I think the one question you did not ask me is how long these generally take and how, how can you do this? I've seen these take up to two and three years from initial time of conversation until it close. Why does it take that long? I think a good part of that is because of your trying to get that comfort on both sides that the organizations are a right fit Mm. and that only comes with time and that only comes with conversation that only comes with meeting and getting to appreciate what people are saying hey i've been in meetings where i've had to speak as the lawyer and i've had my head handed to me by residents if you will because i'm i'm the lawyer because i've got to tell because i'm not going to i'm going to tell them as i see it through the process And they've got to understand that we're going to be honest in this process. We're going to tell them what we think and how this works. If we think it's going to work, it's fine. If we're not, we're not going to waste their time or our time, frankly, and and we'll cut ties at that point. It's clear that this whole process, though, is it's not about the dollars. It's about the comfort for the organization, comfort for residents, and comfort that we can help, and and for the other and for the affiliate, if you will. Comfort that they are entrusting their mission to an organization that will carry on what they what they what they started.
0: This is somewhat of a transition, probably into the more legal side of things of the topic. But I'm interested in what is it that you're what is it that you all look at at leading age on the legal council? What do you learn? Why does the committee exist? Talk to me a little bit about that process, please
1: again two different committees one is the the in-house group and one is the the legal committee which consists of outside counsel at firms and some inside counsel such as myself this is my, i'm on it for my second stint it's a three year term and you need to take a hiatus for at least a year be on be off and then, and then you can come back on after uh, after at least being off a year that's that committee is to help members of uh, leading Age that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have a lawyer, in-house counsel, to be able to send questions to Leading Age uh, that you may have in in the legal realm. And it could be almost anything. We've had it from employment-related mas- uh, issues, governance-related issues, COVID-related issues that came in a lot last year on on through the organization. So it would work on any kind of issues that come up. It's also uh, to keep. Everyone informed, frankly, because there are people who work in various areas, from, as I said, employment employment attorneys, health uh, healthcare related attorneys, uh, m and a attorneys such as myself that that have that are on there, uh, municipal finance attorneys, et cetera.
0: What's the most common question or the most terrifying topic that you find? Communities ask you whether it be on that committee or you run into them in the street, and you're an old friend, and they know you work in long-term care. What's the most intimidating issue that uh, administrators and D.O.N.s and owners and operators come to you with?
1: Oh, okay. Uh, Okay, I thought you meant general public. I can do that one as well. General public's a little bit more interesting. Can can you? My mother is of age. Can you get her on? Can you get her in this community? And the and our answer is, she's got to go on the list and follow along. We can't move people along just because you know me. For people in the industry, however, as, as you were raising that question, it's everything. I, I think it's it's a kitchen sink. There can be there could be healthcare related issues that come up. There could be, and again, a lot of the issues that may in the last year have been on COVID and the relationship between either state pronouncements, state orders, how they come into play with perhaps the CDC and their pronouncements and how how you match them up. What, what do you follow? How do you do that? Whether it's on visitation rights, whether it's on vaccines, whether it's healthcare related issues that come along the line. And again, we're talking in an industry where very heavily uh, labor intensive. So a lot of areas, a lot of HR related issues that come up uh, to the committee and otherwise.
0: What would you say would be the most misunderstood area in the legal field that that you, that you hear come up? From smaller facilities that don't have an in-house attorney but again, I, I think that's the the intricacies of some of the law and how that all works and comes into play
1: mm-hmm. i think i i think if you're talking general public and just that a little bit is the industry as a whole i don't i think this is an industry uh, at least my area that that I deal in that's very much not understood i don't think they Life plan, life plan communities, continuing care retirement community area is, is very well understood. I don't think people understand that to a great extent. It's an insurance product more than anything else, because you're insuring, uh, at least in the in the types of contracts that AX has and 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 other organizations have, you're insuring people in in the industry that they're if as they move along the continuum, that there's a space for them and there's a location for them and in our case since because of the type of contract that their monthly maintenance fee doesn't change
0: one of my most recent interviews that i did i asked i asked him after the call i said what's your biggest pain point as a ceo of a, of a new facility and 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 his reply was to me legal hr he says i don't i don't know how to do it I don't come from that world. I don't have someone in-house. I'm always afraid that I'm going to get sued, not only from residents, but I'm going to get sued by some type of employee. What would you say? Let's assume that's 20% of CEOs and owners and operators who have that type of reaction when I ask them that. What would you say to them? Where would you tell them to go? How would you make them feel? These are the steps you need to do so you're less worried, more informed, and feel protected. It's a question that is
1: common because there's so many organizations that do not have in-house counsel, uh, that they're working in areas that they don't feel comfortable with. It's not a familiar area. So I think you start off by saying you're not alone. This is a very common issue. The question is, how do you find that outside counsel or that counsel, frankly, And how do you manage them through that process? Because, you know, years ago, I can remember, and again, I'm not a litigator and I've I've not been in a courtroom all that much. And I try to avoid that. It's another side of the practice of law that, you know, I I know plenty of them and I bring them in when necessary. And some of my best friends are litigators, if you will. You've got to the, the bigger part of that is knowing who to call and knowing really what you what you need. And I I feel for those individuals. I feel for those CEOs or CFOs or whomever has been delegated the role of in house legal contact to try to figure out who to call. Mm. A lot of times they're going to have a general counsel. A lot of these organizations started by, by a lawyer who was, you know, the smaller ones. And again, this was years ago, who was the general practitioner who did. Personal injury cases in the morning, and they were in court. Personal injury cases in the morning, and then they went to do wills and trusts in the states in the afternoon. And at night, they went to the board meeting where they were general counsel for the local skilled nursing facility or continuing care retirement community or what have you, and didn't have the expertise, didn't have the experience. We, as lawyers, we, we, we don't use the word expertise except in very small areas. And generally, we're not experts. We don't hold ourselves out to be experts. We are experienced, but we're not experts. And so I don't like using that word experts. And we're frankly not allowed to use and shouldn't be using the word expert in any of these areas. But people who are experienced in this area to understand a little bit about how these operations work. It's hard. The idea is to try to find the right person to be able to be the quarterback, if you will, of, of legal needs. And that's difficult. That's that's hard to do. If you have a lawyer that you have that's general counsel, that's great. But then again, you know, I've been in firms, the same thing where, oh, you need somebody to do a real estate transaction. My partner down the street will do that, whether he's good or not. And I can say this now because I'm not in the firm, but whether they're good or not, you know, we're going to use the person in my firm if, if that's what that person does. So it's difficult. It's hard. It's not That's not an easy question to answer because that individual, that CEO doesn't know what they don't know. Mm. And that's the difficult part of this.
0: And I've spoken to you enough, Glenn, that I know you won't be offended. But I always think that when it's the same situation or a similar situation, when you, you, you know something's wrong with your car and you move to a new city and you don't know how to find a mechanic. And so you, you normally rely upon a friend, but the friends the friends mechanic works in Ford and you have a BMW. And it's just scary. But the main the main the main difference is one misstep legally could really put your organization back, you know, one year, two years financially, culturally speaking, even so.
1: That's why people hate lawyers and love lawyers all at the same time. Mm. And it, it's really it, it, it's really something that I mean. When I was practicing law, not in house, I always wanted. I I never wanted a short term relationship with a client. In fact, there there could be times when it was a one off deal where somebody came to me and said, "I only want you to do this," and I wouldn't want to do it because I want I wanted that long term relationship so that they could feel trust. They could feel that I had their best interest at heart, regardless of whether I was. I I was using somebody in my firm or telling you to go to somebody else because we did not have the experience, somebody experienced in the area that they were looking for. And this area, senior living, long-term care is very difficult because the number of attorneys that work in this area is relatively small. How did you get into the industry? It's a long story and you have plenty of time. So I will tell you. The firm I, I started practicing law with was a very small firm in suburban Philadelphia. We, when I got there, and this is back in 1984, I was the 17th lawyer to join the firm. Now, that firm, though, had very sophisticated business clients and nonprofit clients for the, industry, for the area, for the industry uh, that we we're in. Um, one of their clients at the time was Axe at that time, 1984. And so I started doing some work for them uh back then I was obviously I was I, I had gone to I had started my career after law school at Arthur Anderson in the Philadelphia office. So I spent about a year and a half there, got my CPA. Well I or I got my CPA, I took the last portion of that test the day I left Arthur Anderson and started practicing law and, and went to work for this firm. So I started doing work, and I guess in the in the mid-90s, I was asked to look at a transaction for acts and just started at that point, did that transaction for them, and then started to take over their work. So that's really how I got into long-term care, senior living, and what have you. I also got into another way is that I also did a lot of municipal finance at the time for the organization. So I was I was also looking at this from the bond council side and borrower's council side of, of financing. So I, I those were, again, specialty work not general counsel type work for those organizations.
0: What do you mean? You are looking at it, the financial side of things, and, and walk me through how, how does how does a facility get to that? How do they? How do you? How did you get involved? And what were you looking at? And what should they think about as they start to look at financing? You're speaking from a bond point of view. A
1: bond point of view, yeah, uh, and uh, tax exempt financing point of view. So those those would involve either a private placement bank transaction, or an underwriting, a a bond financing, if you will. In those transactions, there are various legal seats, if you will. And they'll be different depending on whether you're selling bonds or whether an underwriter is selling bonds on your behalf, or if you're going to a bank and simply doing a bank loan from the bank with a tax-exempt overlay, if you will. Mm -hmm. Again, I was involved because of, of some of the work that I did for in the financial area as a lawyer, representing either the lenders, if you will, or representing, acting as bond counsel for organizations or as borrowers counsel. Again, three different seats at that table, but I was, I was doing work in that process,
0: and that was in private practice. And, and that was with long-term care communities, right? Yes, what would be the reason that they do a bank loan versus a bond it could be the size
1: of of the transaction it could be the rate that you could get from a bond it's also a, a little bit easier to do a bank transaction depending on the on the bank obviously involved because you're only dealing with one lender if you will as opposed to an underwriter who is selling bonds to the market be it either institutional investors or other investors that are out there, so it's a little bit broader. Usually, a bank has a limitation has limitations to how much they could loan to an organization. So, for a major project, it may be an underwriting. Also, your rate may be better depending on uh, what happens. It's a lot of different factors that go into it. Each transaction is going to be different. So, my legal phrase "it depends" comes into play.
0: <laughs> what What were you looking for in terms of? kind of the intangible variables that you would pay attention to when you had to examine a bond and what that that a facility was bringing to you.
1: If I were representing the facility and acting as or the you know, the community acting as the as the borrowers council again we're monitoring the transaction so we're going back and looking at the governance documentation. We're looking at what they're trying to accomplish in the transaction. What are they trying to finance? Again, if you're doing a tax exempt financing, there's got to be a project that you're financing. We have to look at that and see whether it qualifies. And again, working with the team, working with bond counsel, working with either bank counsel or underwriters council to to look at the whole transaction, see how that see how that works. We're gathering documentation from the company to provide to the bond counsel to make sure that they review this, to make sure that it qualify that the transaction will qualify for tax exempt financing will be looking at the covenants that the the bank or underwriters council might want to put in place and see whether they're feasible, reasonable, and and help negotiate what they would be and how they would be put in place and for how long. So a lot of different pieces to those types of transactions, depending on as the lawyer, what seat you're sitting in.
0: You made the full-time transition from non-healthcare over to healthcare. 20-ish years ago?
1: I was a general transactional lawyer. I went I came in-house to Axe five years ago. Okay. Uh, almost to the day, frankly, from when we're doing this. But when I was outside council, I had I had clients in all different areas, manufacturing clients, for profit organizations, financial institutions. As I said, I started with with landfillers. So it was anything and everything. And I one question you asked about lawyers, how did you? How did I get into this area? It was because the clients were there. And I've, I've told young lawyers, and I've had young lawyers say, I want to work in this field or I want to work on that field. I said, well, then you got to get those clients because the, when you get to a law firm, they're going to move you into whatever wherever they need help, whatever they're looking for, depending on the size of the firm and, and what it is and how you're going to get there. The larger the firm, the, the more specialized you will become. The, or narrow your scope will be, I was fortunate in that my organization, while small, had very sophisticated air, uh, clients in very different areas. so I had a well-rounded background in all the different types of transactional work, and I think that helps because when you're acting as a general counsel, you, you got to spot issues and that's really my main job is to spot issues and be able to help the client understand. Here here's the pain point. Here's the issues. Here's what we've got to achieve. And then figure out how to get it done.
0: Pardon my ignorance related to your role, but is the is the job for you the same no matter where you are in what industry? Are there specific issues, something specific about our industry that makes it harder for you as in a person, like something emotionally, or something even more rewarding for you as a person and your your background as an attorney? Is the job a job or is there something harder about long-term care, but also better about long-term care when you go home at night? It's, it's a, it, again, it, it's one of those, I, I think working with
1: nonprofits, and I've heard other, other peers say this, working with nonprofits may be more w- rewarding because of the idea of the mission, the idea that there's something more than just the bottom line. Yeah, the bottom line is important in any business, and any organization. And I don't care how big it is. I don't care how small it is. I don't care what the organization is. And, and I, as I said, I, I have my LL, as you said, I have my LLM in taxation. I, I have my sort of, I'm, I, I have qualified as a certified public accountant. I have a law degree and I, I'm a practicing lawyer. If I really wanted to go crazy, I should have I become a, uh, an actuary as well, but I never did. So you go through these processes to see what's what. I think part of the reward of this is the idea that there's something more important than the bottom line, even, and as, again, as I said, it is important, but it's just as important or maybe more important is, is what we're doing and who we serve. And that's something that the nonprofits have more than, I have found more than
0: in, in the for-profits. I think, Glenn, as we start to wrap things up, I've noticed in the last month or two, I've heard many different teammates in our industry mention that long-term care is getting beat up with clickbait articles. Netflix just had a well-known show come out about someone who's just corrupt inside of a nursing home and major news stories on the front page of national newspapers. And a lot of them, you know, 50% 50% of it has to do with something that's negligent, something that is illegal, not beyond unethical, illegal. How do you read those news from an attorney's point of view, specializing in our industry? Appalled
1: mm-hmm. on,
0: on many of those. Again, you have to go back
1: and look at the stories and look at what's behind them. Last year with COVID, as, as you will recall, As this started, there were a lot of articles, negative articles, about the industry, about skilled nursing facilities and and how they handled the beginnings of COVID and why and how. And you had to back up. You had to really look at the entire board to understand that. And it's difficult. I think this is, a, as I said earlier, this is a misunderstood industry. We were dealing with something that no one had ever seen before a disease that was killing people all over the world. There was no relief anywhere. Everybody was trying to figure out where they could go to get out of this or schedule a vacation. Then you stopped and you thought about this and you said, I can't go anywhere that's not affected by COVID during 2020. And so it was getting into skilled nursing facilities early on a lot. And, And you're dealing with a population that was the most vulnerable of the most vulnerable. You had people with comorbidities at the end of life for them, and again in their 70s, 80s, 90s, hundreds beyond. That were very difficult. They were, you know, I always, I have said, it's very difficult there. And then you have these articles coming out that were negative, that how these people were dying and they were not being protected and they were not being covered by these organizations. And then you had to step back. And then the industry had to come forward and say, wait a minute. And then articles had to come out and say, wait a minute, let's stop and think about this to really cover it. Now, again, that doesn't get to your first question, which was people who are doing bad things. Okay, so so, you know, on on the COVID side, I think we were getting bad press as far as that was concerned. And then the reaction was, no, you've got to you've got to look at the bigger picture. But there's always going to be bad actors in industries. Those are people in any industry, frankly, those are people that have to be dealt with and whether it's in skilled nursing or other areas of long-term care. And again, that's what the False Claims Act goes after. That's what others go after. That's why the Department of Justice stops those. This is going to happen in all industries. I mean, it's because billing is so complicated and so hard, things happen. and, And when there are mistakes, We'll get them corrected. The industry will get them corrected, and we'll get them taken care of. And if it, if somebody falsely bills the government for funds, you got to go back and see why and how. Um, we have a uh, one of my jobs again is is compliance and 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 working in compliance. And that's something that's very key, and it's something that you know I take quite seriously, and AX takes quite seriously. We were one of the first organizations we were involved in in compliance back through the mid '90s. And, and we've had a compliance, organiz- a compliance program since the mid-90s and before, but really a formalized compliance program since then. We're we're one of the first uh, long-term care providers to be, have our program certified by Health Ethics Trust, which is an organization that certifies compliance programs. And so, you know, we take that quite seriously. So when I see articles like that, I think it's black eye a black eye to the to the organization to the excuse me to the organizations that work in this industry, but again it's going to help it happen everywhere. We've got to get the good stories out and the right stories out as well
0: very true, very true Glenn. I really appreciate you putting up with me today. We have jumped everywhere as you could tell. I was fumbling around with my notes because I knew that I wanted to get into affiliation since. It was new for me in long-term care to understand what was going on with trends and potential consolidation. And I was fascinated by the fact that you work for a nonprofit and, and how, how that works. And then we moved around to legality and financing and then came back to national press stories. Is there anything that I haven't asked you today that we should cover? Only that I think this
1: is a growing industry. I think it's it's really just started to to move and move forward, it's going to get bigger it's going to, and it's going to get more complex. And so that, you know, we lawyers take a bad rap, as you were saying, the the press articles that are out there about people who do things wrong. I think my mantra is, you know, we the lawyers have to stop saying no and start saying, here's you, if we're going to do this, we have to do it right. And here's how we have to do it. To get through the process this is what we have to do so you know i think i think we're always called the naysayers through this we will don't talk to the lawyers because the lawyers will stop you and the answer is again that's that's not an appropriate thought process either the lawyers are there to protect you mm. and that's really what what our jobs are is to at least tell you what the issues are and what you may face and so i think as an industry we've got we, to we've got to do do a better job of understanding what the role is of the lawyers and, and how that works, and understand that it's, it's just to protect the organizations. And again, as I view my role here, is to protect the organization. And I think from my CEO, my board, th- they recognize that, that that's really what it is. And that's what I try to do to the best of my ability.
0: Appreciate it. What advice would you give to yourself, uh, your younger self, as you start to get into long term care? Given our industry's complexity, amount of regulation, depth of HR, dependence, what advice would you give to your younger self that you wish you would have known? Two things. One, I tell
1: young lawyers when I, when I used to train them. First one is common sense. You know, Make sure that, that you use your common sense through the process. We're dealing with all kinds of issues all over the place. Back up. Look, you know, I'll use the cliche. Back up. Look at the entire board as you're doing that, but use your common sense through that. It, it will get you through. It certainly worked for me through the last number of years that I've been doing this. The other thing that I've told, and this dovetails into that, what I tell you, told young lawyers in the process is know your instincts. Know whether you have good instincts or bad instincts. Clients are going to ask you questions. I get calls all the time from my peers here my my other other senior management and middle management who will call up and say hey i've got this issue i've got this problem help me walk me through this let me see what's what you're not going to know the answer to every question you can, and and i learned early on clients did not want to hear that's a great question i have to go research it and i'll call you back in 2 hours after i get through you have to know what your instincts are you got to know whether you have good instincts or bad instincts if you have good instincts Use them. Go with them. Chances are good you're going to get the right answer coming off the top of your head. And again, gets to that common sense issue. If you have bad instincts, however, learn an alternative. Figure out how you get around it. Don't go with it if if you know that. But you got to be honest with yourself as you're going through that process. And again, I've used that for young attorneys because as a young attorney, we really, as young attorneys, and I know this happened to me, we think we know everything. And the only day you start to become a good attorney is the day you realize how much you do not know. Mm. And the better attorney is when you're willing to admit it to yourself and others.
0: I feel like that applies for uh, other professions. So it's good. <laughs> Even if you're not from long-term care and you happen to be listened to a guy with a master's in taxation, that's good life advice, Glenn. Where can listeners find you online if they want to reach out and talk to you about anything that we've covered today?
1: You can go to the AX website. You can also go to LinkedIn. I'm on LinkedIn as well.
0: We'll put those in the show notes. Glenn, thank you so much for joining LTC Heroes. And I look forward to talking to you in the future. Thank you. It was fun. Keep up the great care. Thank you. Visit ltcheroes.com to join our Facebook group for nurses and our exclusive LinkedIn group for LTC owners. Visit ltcheroes.com for your exclusive access today. This episode was brought to you by experience.care, the long-term care EHR backed by guarantees. Visit experience.care forward slash guarantee to get your free profitability consultation today.